Good morning. My name is Heather Thornburg. Today's reading comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. We invite you to follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's 1 John chapter 3, starting with verse 14. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in nursery to preschool and kindergarten to second grade, you are invited to escort your children to the back of the room to join Kids Commons upstairs. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life within them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, parents and guardians of children in nursery to preschool and kindergarten through second grade, you are invited to escort your kids to Kids Commons at the back of the room. Good morning. Uh, my name is Marcus. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons. Uh, each week before our sermon, we typically take some time for silence and stillness. And at the risk of this becoming this, this empty thing that we do each week, uh, I want to invite us to really embrace this time this morning. Right? Silence and stillness, they give us a chance to remind ourselves that we are loved even as we sit and do absolutely nothing. We can silence the noise around us so that we can become aware of the noise within us, the voice of the living Christ, poking, prodding, speaking, encouraging, guiding, so as we take this moment to pause, let's see what bubbles up this morning. Hear what's going on in your heart. Are you tired? Are you excited? Are you cynical? Are you distracted? Are you engaged? How might God be wanting to meet you there in these places? How can you meet God from these places? Let's take a few moments of silence and I'll pray and get started. Christ Lord, we approach you this morning. We give you as much as we can give you right now. We give you whatever parts of our attentions, our spirits, our attitudes, whatever we can give, Jesus, we give to you. We thank you for life. We thank you for an ability to think and reflect and move and change and choose 
and be here with you, Lord, among people who also want to be here with you. Meet us this morning through your word, through the voices of those who have followed you in the past in, in Christian history, just like we are trying to follow you now. In your son's holy, holy name we pray. Amen. Uh, every January, some friends and I, we go to Maryland for, our, for an annual trip to a music festival. Uh, we've gone for eight years now, and it's one of the things that I look forward to most throughout the year. And before you go thinking that I'm super cool for attending an annual music festival, just you wait, okay? The name of the festival is MAGFest, M-A-G-Fest, which stands for the Music and Gaming Festival, right? This is an annual music festival that's completely dedicated to the music of video games. And so for three days, for 24 hours a day, MAGFest is this nerdy, rowdy time of dancing and partying and gaming and staying up way too late before slowly being taken out by sore muscles and ringing ears and the possibility that maybe I am getting too old for this. Uh, but that decision's gonna be for next year. We're gonna make that decision. Uh, and so you may know this or not, but anytime that you gather a bunch of nerds, like all in one place, we love to dress up like our favorite characters. Okay, so the, the phenomenon is known as cosplaying. It's a, it's a riff on the words costume play and it's the practice of dressing up as a character from a movie, from a book, or from a video game. So while you're dancing at a concert at two in the morning, you turn around and you, and you see Super Mario right there, dancing right next to you, right? It's common to come out of the concert to go grab some water, only to discover that you're in line behind the entire Scooby-Doo Mystery Machine gang. And don't think I'm above this, by the way. Uh, one year, me and my group, we dressed up as the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Uh, we got stopped over and over again for pictures because it's rare to get all of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers with you in one picture. So I'm very proud of this, by the way. Um, sometimes those cosplaying, they will role play themselves as if they are that character, right? So the person who's cosplaying Buzz Lightyear will yell, to infinity and beyond. The person cosplaying Shaggy is gonna yell, zoinks, right? They all have props and tools, all usually homemade, by the way, so it's not just about the Captain America costume, but it's also about the authentic shield that they're carrying that's real metal. It's not just the Batman suit, it's the fully light-up, functional, homemade utility belt that makes noises when you press buttons on it. I bring all this up because it just so happened that while I was at MAGFest a few weeks ago, I was preparing for this sermon. So please, picture this with me, okay? There I am, walking around, the words of 1 John, rolling around in my brain, coming in and out of this thought and the prayer and sermon meditation that I just love doing, all while standing in a crowd of Yoshis and Pokemon and Disney characters and Power Rangers. And this sounds, it's as, it's as absurd as it sounds, right? Uh, but because of the absurdity, right, I came upon this other question. What would it look like to cosplay as a Christian? Right, so Captain America has his shield. Mario and Luigi, they have their hats and their overalls. What would a Christian do in this situation? Now, I don't think people are going to rush to uh, come get a picture with a guy dressed as a Christian, uh, but you get my drift, right? If you were to boil a Christian down to this one distinctive thing that identifies them, what is that thing? What is my character, right? What could I wear? What could I do? What could I say? How could I act? How could I perform in a way that would make people instantly recognize me across the room and say, oh, look, that guy, he's, he's Christian. I'm sure that we have different answers to this question. 
Maybe it's theology and knowledge. One shows that they're a Christian by demonstrating that they know a lot about God. Maybe it's scripture, right? Somebody cosplaying as a Christian would carry around a big King James Bible, right? The one true Bible for Christians. Maybe Christian cosplay for you means wearing a Republican t-shirt or a Democrat t-shirt. Maybe you'll play the part that you're put together, you're well-behaved, and generally you have it all together with a rich and fulfilling life with a nuclear family that perfectly gets along. Maybe for some of us, cosplaying Christianity would not be about what you do, but about what you don't do, right? Christians don't drink. Christians don't live with their boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage. They don't show too much skin at the pool. They don't say bad words, and they don't get too close during the slow dance. How would one cosplay as a Christian? What do Christians look like? This morning, we're continuing our sermon series in 1 John. It's a series that we're calling The Gospel in Real Life. Uh, 1 John is a letter written to the brand new Christian community in Ephesus. And the author, presumably John, details the core, most important, most central aspects of the gospel. And if you were to read this letter in its entirety, you'd notice, in my opinion at least, that John gets like, gets a little repetitive. Uh, And that's sort of the point, though, of the letter. John's trying to drown out all this noise that this church is feeling, simplify the message for them, and remind his listeners again and again of the real essence of what they're doing here. It's a tough task for John, but it's a necessary one because there is a lot of noise coming into Ephesus. Uh, We've touched this a few times during the sermon series so far, but scholars' best guess is that at the time that this letter was written, there was a lot of noise coming from this philosophy called Gnosticism. And at the risk of oversimplifying things greatly, uh, Gnostics believed that behavior didn't matter, okay? Instead, salvation came from gaining special knowledge about God. Salvation was not received from God, it was attained for yourself. And to Gnostics, to attain salvation, one must gain this special knowledge of the divine. Right knowledge, right, special knowledge, this is what makes somebody a true Christian, And if you don't have that special knowledge, you're incomplete. You're not there yet. And you can see how this would start raising a bunch of problematic questions in the community. How much special knowledge do you need to be united with God or friendly with God? Who gets to decide what special knowledge is special knowledge versus not special knowledge? Where do I go to get it? Do I get it from a person? Do I get it from a book? Do I get it from the marketplace? Where do I go? Uh, Questions like these led to debates debates led to conflict, and there was enough conflict that John felt the need to send a letter to Ephesus. And in our our passage this morning, the passage that Heather just read for us, John goes right for it. He, He addresses Gnostic thought head on. He's clear. The one true way that you can see if somebody is one with God, it's not about special knowledge. It's about how much they love. Who are Christians? Christians are the ones who love. After all, John writes, right, this is the message that you've heard from the very beginning. He reminds them, we should love one another. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life, but a person who has no love is still dead. And just in case some are tempted to overcomplicate things or to start debating about what love actually is and what love isn't, John makes a great turn in his argument, and he sets Jesus up as the prime example of love. He writes this in verse 16, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. John reminds his listeners, 
right? That Jesus is the demonstration of love. Jesus is the embodiment of love. He's not a, Jesus isn't a type of love. Jesus is an example of love. Jesus, Jesus didn't just choose to be loving on a good day. Jesus is the way we see and the way we know real love. And how easily we can lose sight of that. You know, today we think about love in a bunch of different ways. We love our sports teams. We love our families. We love that outfit. We love things. But what do we mean when we use that word? Ask a poet. Love is the binding force that holds us all together. Ask a scientist. Love is no more than chemical reactions happening in the brain. Ask a public speaker. Love is the easiest way you can get a crowd to love you without ruffling too many feathers. And today, there's almost this like magical, mystical, like squishy, mysterious meaning behind the word. Right? Love is going to mean different things depending on who's talking and who's listening and what the context is. Theologian R.C. Sproul said that he doesn't think that there is any word in Scripture that has been stripped of the depth of meaning, such as the word love. And so we have to be careful when reading Scripture like this from John. We can read these words about Jesus' love, and without even knowing that we're doing it, we're injecting our modern understanding of love, our personal understanding of love, into the passage, which is really what we think love is, not what John is talking about. So let's start from scratch, right? Let's ask, what is love? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. <laughs> I, that song has been in my head all week, by the way, so I have to get it out, and you guys need to carry that burden with me from now on. <laughs> uh, okay, back on track. Let's start from a blank space, right? Let's ask, what is the kind of love that John is referring to here? In the New Testament, there are two Greek words for love, the word phileo and the word agape, so in the word phileo, you may be surprised to learn that maybe you're already kind of familiar with it, right? It's the city of a name in the New Testament, inspired the name of a city in the New Testament, <laughs> uh, Philippi, and it's also the name of a city here in the U.S., Philadelphia, right? Philly has a nickname. It's known as the city of brotherly love. That's right. Uh, the word phileo is used to describe the type of love that's experienced among friends, so it's the kind of love where we like each other. It's the kind of love where we get along. We have affection for each other. We're both getting something out of this mutual symbiotic relationship. Is this the kind of love that Jesus has? Is this the kind of love that we are to show others as Jesus' followers? Yeah, and no at the same time. So back to square one. What word do the writers use to adequately capture the love of Christ? And in the New Testament, I imagine the writers were wrestling with this exact question. Phileo couldn't get them there. Because ultimately, right, they knew that God's love was deeper than the kind of love that we experience here among friends. So over time, to describe the love of God, they adopted the word agape. They didn't invent the word agape, but they repurposed it, right? They reapplied it. They expanded the definition. And it, kind of a cool Bible geek, history geek note here if you look at the other contemporary Greek literature of the day, you'll see that the New Testament scriptures use this word way more than other words. So in the marketplace and on the streets, right, this, is, this became this unofficial Christian word among the Christian community. Agape is the term used to describe a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. And so to John and to the other writers, Agape was used to capture Jesus' immeasurable, incomparable love for humankind, an ongoing, other-oriented, self-sacrificing concern for other people. Agape love, says theologian 
Andrews Nigren, he writes that agape love is unmotivated in the sense that it is not contingent on any value or worth in the object of love. It is spontaneous. It is heedless. It does not determine beforehand whether love will be effective or appropriate in any particular case. One of the most important aspects of agape love is that it is unconditional affection and care. This type of love, the writers decided, this type of love is foundational to who God is. And don't forget, right, John started this very letter in the very beginning by writing that God is agape. It's not that God shows love. It's not that God gives agape away. It's not that God is loving on his good days, right? It's kind of radical, and it kind of hurts your brain a little bit, but it's that God is unconditional, other-oriented, agape love. God is that. Agape love is God. God is agape love. And so, therefore, to John, the defining characteristic of Christians the prop and the tool that they're going to carry around the nerd convention. It should not be about what they wear, not the jargon that they use, not the knowledge they have. The one thing that defines and differentiates Christians is an ability to reflect unconditional, sacrificial, charity-based love to other people. Discussions about God are they're great things. Gaining knowledge about God, God, studying theology, these are all great things. I would argue they're some of the most important things that we can do. But John's point here is that all the things that you can do, all the knowledge that you attain, it all must be in service to unconditional love. Paul wrote something similar in his letter to the Corinthians using the same word, agape, right? Paul writes, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, If I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, and if I even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Dear children, John writes, dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. And to be honest, I'm tempted to just sort of end my sermon right there. Right? You know in Sunday school when the teacher asks a question and the kid yells, Jesus, is the answer to every single question. This is one of those mornings that if somebody were to ask you what the sermon's about, you could just say, love, and you'd be right. You'd nail it. But let's stop and let's be still right now. When you hear about this kind of love, when you are confronted by this kind of love, when you acknowledge that this is the kind of love with which Christ loves you, How does your heart respond to that? Do you want that? Are you thirsty for that? Are you growing tired of trying to give that? Do you wish for that? Are you cynical about that? Confused by it? Angry about it? Is there a name, a face, a relationship in your life right now where you need that? You know, most of us, we love who Jesus is. We love what Jesus represents. We love how Jesus challenges the status quo and breaks down social barriers and fights for what's right. We love how patient he is, how grace-filled he is, how hospitable he is, how much love he shows. We love reading stories and thinking about Jesus' agape love, especially when Jesus is loving us, especially when Jesus is loving me. But are you actually loving? 
Are you loving one another with an immeasurable, incomparable love for humankind? An ongoing, never-ceasing, other-oriented, self-sacrificing concern for all of creation. Are you loving like that? Are we loving like that? We are trained, conditioned, right, even encouraged at points to experience and extend love conditionally. The world teaches us to show a phileo love, a brotherly, a sisterly love, a love that is predicated on others' ability to meet our own conditions. I love you. You love me. We both benefit. It's fair. It makes sense. It's logical. And baked into that logical relationship are conditional assumptions, right? I will love you if you continue to hold that opinion. I will love you if you help me out. I will love you after you admit that you did wrong. I will love you after you ask me for forgiveness. I will show compassion for someone in need after they show some effort of wanting to help themselves. Or the flip side of that, right? I will stop loving you if you start taking drugs. I will stop loving you if you drop out. I will stop loving you if you lose your job. I will stop loving you if you consider that form of birth control. To love somebody unconditionally, to seek another's benefit and well-being unconditionally, to care for them, offer them help, meet their needs unconditionally, to give others the same love that Christ gives us, man, that's hard. It means loving someone when you don't get anything out of it. Loving someone while you're being mistreated and disrespected. Loving somebody even when they look you in the face and say that they don't love you. That's hard. In fact, I would say that's impossible. On our own, we will not and we cannot unconditionally love other people. Yet, John reminds us, this is what Jesus did for you. God became flesh and came to love us, not when we got it all together, but while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. This is real love. Not that we loved God, not that we did anything right on our own, but that God loved us. John reminds us, God showed and shows unconditional love, even when that love took Christ all the way to the cross. And yet, while Christ hung there in the sight of all of those who put him there, Jesus chooses to pray, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Think about, think about that. Think about the unconditional love that's baked into that statement in this context. You know, I read this, and I, and I hear this prayer, and the first thing that I think, Jesus, those people knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing as they sentenced you to death. They knew exactly what they were doing as they put the cross up to stand up. They knew exactly what they were doing as they were driving the nails into your wrists. And yet, even still, Jesus sees them more clearly, even than they see themselves. He sees their blindness. He sees that they're unaware, and he sees how the systems and the structures and the stiffness of the day prevents them from truly knowing, truly knowing what they're doing. And then he asks for their forgiveness. While hanging there, minutes from death, Jesus asks for their forgiveness. And then he dies. And when he dies, Jesus took on all of our sin all of our judgments and conditions and our cynicism and hurt and the ways that we choose ourselves over other people, all those things and all those reasons that we show conditional love, Jesus took all of that onto himself and killed them. 
And three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, remaking, renewing us, rededicating us to this new kind of being, a new kind of love, a love that's built not on conditions, but a real love that enables us to look at another and see them and hear them and meet them and love them. We cannot show this unconditional love to others, but the resurrected Christ, the Christ who is alive in us, gives us the capacity to show this kind of love to others. Christ enables us to love beyond our own capacity to love. So you, Christian, you are enabled and empowered to unconditionally love. You, Christian, Christ has empowered you to unconditionally love. You, Christian, Christ has empowered you to unconditionally love. God helps you love those who do not look like you. He, loves, he helps you love your spouse and your children. He helps you love your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends and your enemies. He helps you love those who mistreat you and disagree with you and those who think that you're stupid and those who act like you don't exist, those who test your patience, those who treat you like you're second rate, those who insult you, those who act like you're invisible. God is within you right now asking to transform the way that you see them and relate to them. And at risk of thinking and talking about love all morning. Take a moment to think about how that would feel to receive that kind of love, to be surrounded by that kind of love. Imagine a worship community. Imagine a neighborhood, a, a parent-child relationship, a friendship made up and baked into unconditional love. Relationships in which we really love the good and the polished and the unfinished and the weak and the broken where we can be ourselves without feeling the need to perform and to fake it, the kind of community that is safe and secure and confident that we are known and loved by God and by one another. It's the kind of relationships that say, no matter what you've done, no matter what you do, God, who is love, God is greater than what I'm feeling right now. No matter what you've done and what you do, God is still greater. It's the kind of community where you could be honest, that you could grow, that you could make mistakes, that you don't need to have all the knowledge, where you could take it, where you don't need to have it all together, and none of us are going anywhere. None of us. That here, you are loved not by what you do, not by what you believe, not how, you, how able you are able to articulate what you think, but simply because you are you. How freeing that kind of community would be. This is is what we're trying to do. This is the unconditional love of Christ. This is the love that we are invited to offer one another, that we are empowered and enabled to offer one another. It's a love that says, I love you, even if you never change. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. It's a love that says that you were disconnected, alone, cast aside, and lost, but now you are connected loved, and accepted. There's nothing that you can do to earn that. Nothing that you can do to lose that, and there's nothing you can do to achieve that more. Christ enables us to love beyond our capacity to love. 